that to me, right? I was wondering if anyone was going to say, Happy Father's Day. I'm not a father yet, but to all the fathers out here, uh, Happy Father's Day. Well, our church, uh, we go through seasons of ministry throughout the year, and usually our fall time, uh, that's when it feels like we're starting a new year. And so because of that, one of the benefits we have with the summer is uh, we can really spiritually uh, recalibrate, uh, take some time to really pray, uh, to develop some of these spiritual disciplines. And we've done that in the past. Uh, we offer Christian education classes in the summer. Uh, we have one coming up soon uh, based off of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, covering topics such as anxiety, how to love others, and how to manage your finances as well. And so... We've been doing that, and these past few weeks, uh, we haven't been going through an explicit sermon series, uh, but we have been hitting some uh, important lessons for our church so that we could be spiritually uh, recalibrated. Just as a recap, uh, a few weeks ago, Pastor David preached on Ephesians chapter 2, uh, talking about the body of Christ in the church. Uh, Pastor Cuban preached on John 21 about how the Holy Spirit comes, he, he empowers and breathes life into the church to be on mission. And last week, uh, we studied the importance of prayer in the church, not only for ourselves, but for our brothers and sisters overseas. Now, we're going to continue along that path uh, with this spiritually recalibration of our church. Today, we're going to look at some of the traits of the early church. Now, when we do that, we typically go to the book of Acts, and we see how the early church was formed. But today, we're going to look in the church of Thessalonica, the Thessalonian church. And I think we can pick up a lot of things here in Paul's letter. And just to give you some background information, how this church got started, Paul, he was on his second missionary journey with Timothy and Silvanus. And so they're in Thessalonica. And it's one of the major cities in Macedonia. And they go to the Jewish temple, and they begin sharing the gospel first to the Jews. Now, this was a very common method that Paul did, because if he went to the temple, he could reason from the Old Testament that Jesus was the Messiah. And not only were there Jews, but also God-fearing Greeks, Gentiles, were at these temples. And now when Paul, when he begins to evangelize, what we see is that people start to be converted. They start to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So let's read this quick account in Acts 17. Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now, here's what happens. Some of them were persuaded. They joined Paul and Silas, whose uh, nickname is Silvanus, the same person. And they did, uh, so did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Conversion takes place. Now, what do you do next? You plant a church. You form a church with these believers, but Paul's time is cut short because immediately after, the people in Thessalonica, they form a mob, and they set the city in an uproar, and they attack all the Christians, and especially those who are hosting Paul and his companions. And so they drag, actually, the host, his name is Jason, out into the streets, also with the other believers, and they yell this, these men, they're turning our world upside down. They're acting against Caesar and saying that there is another king, Jesus. 
And it got so bad that they had to bring in the civil authorities and these believers, Paul and Jason, they had to pay off the mob so that they could leave the city. These mobs, they were out for blood. So all to say, Paul and his companions, their time in Thessalonica was very uh, cut short. So they couldn't do all that they needed to do to form and develop the church, a spiritually mature church. They had to leave. So you can only imagine what Paul and his companions are now thinking in a different region. They're thinking things like, I wonder how the Thessalonian church is doing. Is there even a church? Are there still believers there? And so what they do is they ask Timothy, Timothy, go to Thessalonica, see how things are doing, and go see for yourself and report back to us how they are doing. Timothy goes, comes back with a report. We don't have a copy of what Timothy reports, but we have this. What Paul writes in light of Timothy's report, he writes this, We ought always to give thanks to you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you and for one another is increasing. We can deduce that the report was a great report. Their faith was increasing, increasing their love for one another, growing abundantly. They were concerned that the church was wiped out and that there was not even a church, that the church closed. But not only is there a church in Thessalonica, but the church is thriving. The faith is growing abundantly, love for one another, increasing. And now we're in our passage this morning. Paul picks up a pen and he writes to the church in response to Timothy's report. And that's what we're going to look at in this passage, which is Paul's responses to what is happening over in Thessalonica. My hope and prayer is that as we study what happened over there, that it's going to be what's true for Renewal Mainline, specifically their faith in the gospel that became very visible in their communities. And that's going to be our outline for this morning, that when the gospel, when it comes, when we receive it in full conviction, number one, it results in the imitation of Jesus Christ. The imitation of Jesus Christ. And number two, that imitation is a, what I call a communal imitation. It's not an individual imitation, but it happens in groups. And those are our two points, and we're going to look at some of the results after that. So with that, uh, let us pray and ask the Lord for his help as we study his word this morning. God, we do pray for your Holy Spirit to not only help us to understand the scriptures, but to enable our hearts to embrace them as the very living words of God that has the power to convict, to persuade of sin, to convince us of our misery and our need for you, and ultimately, to see life in Jesus Christ. May that be true, not only individually, but as a church this morning for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So the first thing we see, we see an imitation of Jesus Christ. Look at verse two. Paul's response is, we give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. Remembering before our God and Father, 
your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his expression of thanksgiving and his joy over these brothers, giving thanks always and remembering them and lifting them up. And now in verse 4, he now starts to recount in his mind, replay the account of the Thessalonians receiving this gospel for the first time. When he shared the gospel with them, he starts to remember back then, and it makes him ecstatic. It makes him happy. We do that all the time, right? We, we think back to some of the things that make us happy, some of the, the great tastes of food or, or some familiar smells, and we go back in time, and it makes us nostalgic. It makes us happy. A couple of days ago, I heard that familiar sound. It goes, what did I think? Bubblegum popsicles with a joke on the stick, Mickey Mouse ice cream bars and running out with a dollar bill in my hand. And I just looked back and thought, bang, that's what Paul's doing. He's recounting. He's like, I remember when I shared the gospel, how you received it. And he's making him ecstatic and recount now his time in verse 5. Our gospel, you remember, it came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And here it is. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Note that. And you received the word in much affliction and with much joy in the Holy Spirit. The first thing he recounts is that the gospel came to them not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what that is? That's the day when you get this notion of grace for the first time. You might have known the message of the gospel, the content, the idea that, that Jesus Christ, Son of God, dying for our sins, rose again, and through that, when we believe in that, we go to heaven. You might know that, but that's not exactly what Paul's talking about. He's talking about, yes, you get that, but then in your heart, you taste you see Christ, you see the living God in full power and conviction. When you truly see who you are in your sin, and at the same time you see truly who God is in his majesty and his holiness, you put those two together and you receive in full conviction. That's what Paul recounts. Get that taste. It's that account of Blaise Pascal, that famous mathematician. When he had that kind of moment, he writes this in his journal, fire, in capital, fire, God of Abraham, God of Jacob and Isaac, not the God of the philosophers or of the learned, certitude, certitude, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God. Your God, my God. I remember my first encounter of God and seeing my sins for the first time. I was floored. You know, it's when you expect the complete opposite of what you deserve. You see the hand that is raised to strike you in, in full justice. But in light of that, instead of that, you see Jesus Christ on the cross struck by sinners for our sins. It's when you get that. It's when Les Mis, John Valjean, he steals all the vessels and uh, the silverware and he's about to leave. 
and he gets caught in the bishop. He catches them, and as soon as you would expect the bishop to turn him in, he says, John Valjean, you forgot to take these with you, and he tastes grace for the first time. That's what Paul's talking about. And he recounts that, and perhaps you can recount that in your own life. It's not like it only happens once. It's supposed to happen every day, every week. When we read the liturgy and we pray and we confess our sins, we see who God is, we see who we are, and we taste grace. We see the mercies of the gospel. That's what it means for the Holy Spirit to come in full conviction and in power. It happens every day in our worship gatherings, in our community groups. But this isn't the main point that Paul is driving at. What he's actually getting at is this. He says, I remember the gospel coming to you in full power and in conviction by the Holy Spirit, that Jean Valjean moment, that, that Blaise Pascal moment. But I remember how that encounter with the living God produced out of you this indispensable, this, this compulsory response in verse 6. And what's that? The imitation of the sufferings and the life of the apostles and ultimately Jesus Christ. So he's not simply recounting the, the reception of the gospel, which they did in full power and conviction, but the necessary result that took place in light of that. It's not, it's not A that Paul focuses on, but how A affects B, the, the effects of A. That's what Paul's focusing on. That's this passage. It reminds me, strangely enough, of the MCATs. And one of the hardest subjects on the MCATs is physiology. Because physiology, it's about how if one part of your body is affected with something, you change something in one part, how does a completely different part of your body get changed? So if your thyroid gland, something happens to that, what happens to your weight? That would be a question. Another question would be like, if you drink coffee, and excuse my language, what would be the color of your urine? And I'm looking at these questions and like, I don't want to know about the color of, it was a very hard subject. But it's the study of effects. How one thing leads to the response to another. That's what Paul is driving at. I remember the effect of the gospel that it had on you. Not simply feeling convicted. It's not just feeling challenged or just really loving that message or, or feeling really worshipful, but in addition to that, an actual change, imitation of Christ. And we can't be deceived, brothers and sisters, that simply the reception of the gospel is all that matters. But in fact, it's the physiology of the gospel, the effects that the gospel has, how that reception translates into the imitation of Jesus Christ. There's an interview between two pastors and one of them. He shares a quick anecdote about a man, George Whitfield, 18th century preacher, evangelist, one of the greatest pastors and preachers of all time. This is the 18th century, and records show that he preached at least 18,000 times to about 10 million people. And in these evangelistic meetings, he would preach the gospel. People would be convicted. They'd be in tears. They would raise their hands saying that they want to be saved. And after his meetings, he would be asked, how many people do you think were saved today? And do you know how he would respond? He says, I don't know. 
We'll see six months from now. We'll see a year from now. Because he never de- de- determined how many people actually received the gospel, not on that same day, but six months, one year, to see if that imitation, the effect, actually takes place. Why is that? Because he knew the importance of the effect of salvation. Not just A, remember, but A, affecting B in the person's life. Heart change. And in that interview, the other pastor, he mourns because he looks at our worship services today. And I pray that this would not be true of our church, but he looks at worship services and yes, he says there are times where people walk out of the church on Sunday morning saying things like, I was truly blessed. What a great message by so-and-so pastor or, or what a great time of worship. I was so convicted. You know what? I even cried today. Hallelujah. Praise God and amen to that. But he says we need to be careful because we leave our services, we leave our gatherings with this sense of accomplishment as if we did something great. He says we have to be uh, careful that this conviction doesn't just merely stay at conviction. We got to be careful that verse 5, that they really did receive the gospel in full conviction and power. But we got to make sure that verse 5 also comes with the verse 3 and verse 6. What does verse 3 says? The work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope. Do you see that? Faith, hope, love, work, steadfastness, and labor. And we see verse 6, how that, that gospel that which you received came in full conviction and it made you become imitators of Jesus. He writes, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. We have to focus on that. Not as if the work is the basis of our salvation, but the necessary results of it. Our second point, this conviction... Receiving the gospel, not only is it done in in full power and conviction, but it also leads to an imitation of Christ that is communal, not at an individual level. Now, perhaps up to now, as I've been sharing and talking, you agree with this idea that this gospel, it cannot just simply just be about conviction, just be about feeling, but it must produce results, Christ-like imitation. Now, but I think this is where, and I think where we as a church need to consider, is there Christ-like imitation not only happening in your life, just between you and God, but is there Christ-like imitation in your life with people in community here at our church, the brothers and sisters at Renewal? Personally, I confess it's a lot easier to be just concerned with my own spiritual walk with God, my own Bible reading plan, or my own prayer life or evangelism. Perhaps it's easier for you too. And if that is going on in individuals, and I believe that it is in our church, and I praise God for that, let's keep encouraging that but, and it's a big but here, if it's just Christ-like imitation of the individual, That's not the kind of visible faith that Paul is rejoicing over. Yes, the individual needs to happen, but it also translates into this corporate groups of people, 
pockets of people within the church together imitating Christ. That's what Paul's rejoicing over. Every you that you see from verse 1 onward, it's a plural you. The English can't capture that as well. We don't distinguish the singular or, or, or the plural you. South Philly does. If I translated this, the New Philly translation, it would go like, I thank God for every one of y'all, for how y'all came in full conviction, how the gospel came to y'all. That's how we write. The imitation is communal. And in college, I remember my college pastor, he sat me down over lunch one day, and it was a brand new ministry, very similar to our church here. And I was becoming an upperclassman. We're talking about just how I could start serving and being connected in the church. And as a side note, I wasn't the easiest student to work with. I know I gave him a very hard time. But over lunch, I remember he goes, Luke, yeah, I know you love Jesus. I know that you're serious about your faith. But I don't know if I see that you have that kind of seriousness about the faith of others in our ministry. You're very much like a lone ranger at our church. And just to prove how difficult I was when I heard that, lone ranger, I thought, it's kind of cool. <laughs> I'm a lone ranger here. I have this dark knight Batman image of myself at, at Penn State. That's <laughs> how difficult I was. In Timothy's report, he tells Paul that there's a visible faith that is evident in the communities at the church. Paul rejoices over that. And that's why he can't help but pick up a pen and write this letter, say, we give thanks to God always for all of y'all. All of you, he says, right? Constantly mention you in our prayers. And he continues to write later, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Do you get that? Continue to do what you're doing. You're doing a great job building each other up. Keep doing that. You know, there's a very strong voice out in the world today that says things like, take care of yourself. Just take care of your kids. Take care of your family, your job. And that's a very contrary voice to this. Just a few verses later, he writes, we urge you, brothers, admonish the idol." Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. There's nothing lone ranger about these verses. There's a sense. Well, number one, first, you're in a position to know if people around you are struggling or not. You first have to be in a position to know if there are people who are idle who are faint-hearted and weak around you. If you're not in a position to even detect that, how can we actually admonish and encourage and help and be at peace with them? And second, once you see this happening in the brothers and sisters around you, you can't help. You can't help and just say, you know, I'm doing well as long as my relationship with God is good. If someone asks you, how are you doing spiritually? Yes, you look at your own life, but you also look at the people around you. There's a sense where you can't say, I'm doing great. While the person next to you is struggling and doubting God, you can't, you can't say that in full confidence. Furthermore, when you see your brother or sister giving up their time 
and their energy for the sake of this church, you can't comfortably sit there and just watch either. The commentator says this, each individual in the community is responsible for the development of others and of the whole through this mutual building process. The goal of each member of the community is to build up other members of the church. No church can call itself Christian if it is not characterized by reciprocal love. Kind of looks like this, and I'm going to expose myself just a little bit. In the beginning of my ministry, and I'm going to be honest, in the beginning of my ministry when Joanna and I we were newlyweds, there would be some weeks when I'm working on the Sunday message, and it just happens to be 1 a.m. on Sunday, and I'm working late. Now, I'm exposed, but on those nights, Joanna, it's her Saturday night. She has every right to rejoice and to be happy and to do whatever she wants. But at the same time, she can't comfortably watch a movie in a very loud way and start laughing and have a great time. When I would be working on my messages, staring at this bright screen in the living room, she would go to the bedroom, uh, take the blankets, and come out to the living room and just start reading next to me and eventually fall asleep. Because she knew that she couldn't just comfortably just, just watch these shows and have a great time while I'm, I'm not suffering, but... You know, I'm working this labor of love for the church. That's the nature of our relationship. She couldn't just sit, sit there and just rejoice and have a great time. Or another example. You know, we eat dinner sometimes watching a TV show, and we bring the food in front of the TV, and we eat, and when the show is over, you know, we still kind of lounge around, but you know there inevitably will come a time where you have to clean what you just uh, ate and the, and the plates and put them in the uh, sink. And about an hour or so later, one of us has to get up and do that. It's usually her. And she stands up. But as soon as she stands up and starts taking the dishes, you know what I say? Don't do that. Do you know why I say that? Because I know once she starts doing that, I have to get up. I can't simply lounge there on the couch. But it's also a sign that I need to get up and start clearing things away. I can't simply sit there. It's the nature of our relationship. The imitation of Christ in verse 6, it takes place in the way we receive the word in suffering and in affliction together. In the way we Im imitate Jesus Christ together, that's the nature of our relationship. In the way we admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with one another, each brother and each sister. When they assess the spiritual state of their lives, not only do they look at their individual well-being, but they look around them. That's the nature of God's relationship amongst his children. The elders and I met a few days ago, and it's always a refreshing time for me. And, and like always, ends pretty late. But I always leave encouraged because one of the qualities that I can attest in your elders is that when it comes to any church gathering, any service, or any church event, the questions that are always on their minds are questions like, what was the spirit of the gathering like? Were people blessed? How about this brother? 
How did he receive that message? How did this brother respond in praise? How about that sister? What was the gathering like? And it's always the question of how others are doing, not a question of, I enjoyed the message. I enjoyed that time. And I pray that would be true for every one of us. The pastor shares this. The only way I can experience the fullness of God's salvation in my life is if I'm part of a community of believers who are showing grace to one another in their daily lives. That's exactly what the church is to be, why it is essential. And we can only experience all of God's salvation when we share his grace amongst us. You know what that means? Practically, it means this. When we go to church, when we go to community group, when you go to your discipleship groups, we don't go to that thinking, what am I going to get out of church today? But how am I going to show grace to a brother or sister this morning? The pastor continues to say, you know, when someone asks you at the dinner table, how was church? And you respond, great. And he would ask, well, was it particularly a good sermon or, or was the music special? What was it? And you would answer, no. Neither the music nor the sermon was particularly exceptional. What made church great was that I got to show grace to my friend who I found out was going through a very difficult time. And you should have seen the look on their face when I encouraged them and when I prayed for that person. I wouldn't have missed that for the world. And I can't wait to see who I'm going to show grace to next week. That's what Paul's talking about. Now, what happens when this starts to be true for our church? And we're going to end with some of the results. And this is the home. This is the motivation we have for our church here at Renewal. And we see verse 6, became imitators of us. You receive the word together, right? In much affliction and joy of the spirit, you became an example. And now look at verse 8. Becoming an example to all the believers, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Let me list out what's happening. First, there's a unity. There's a unity that's evident amongst the people. Unity that happens not just because people have similar interests or just because people get along. Because everywhere else in the world, what unites people is whatever common thing that they share, right? Ethnicity, certain values, personalities, interests, hobbies, agendas. But once those things are gone, you have no reason to be with that person. It's a very consumeristic view of relationships. And I have a friend who I used to be very close with when I used to go to the gym a lot. He was my gym buddy. And we're not very close anymore. I stopped doing that a while ago, <laughs> going to the gym. The underlying issue with this kind of unity is that it depends on one another, and it doesn't work like that. It never works. When I was in fourth grade, I started playing the violin, and our school teacher 
she was getting us ready for our first uh, concert. And during our first rehearsal, I remember everyone, they would go to their seats. They would run around and look for their names on their seats on where they would have to sit. And everyone would do that, and they'd be so happy. And the teacher told me, Luke, don't go to your seat yet. Stand behind this curtain. <laughs> so I was off to the side on the stage, and I was about to cry. So everyone's like enjoying themselves. They have their seats. They know who their partners are. But then I found out the reason why I was to stand off to the side. Because I was to make my entrance later as the first chair, as the concertmeister. And not only do I get to have this grand entrance later, but before we start, I would play my violin and everyone would have to tune to me. I was the source. I was the alpha. I was the beginning. But here's the point. Whenever you have musicians tuned to one another, they're never in tune. But once you tune every one of them to one person, the result is that they are united. When believers are imitating Christ as the alpha, as the source, what happens? People start to be united not because of similar interests or ethnicity or similar hobbies, but because of Christ. That's why Paul says, imitate Christ. Look to him and you will be united. What else happens? In verse 8, Paul testifies that the visible faith that is evident, it starts to sound forth from them in Macedonia and Achaia. In fact, their faith in God has gone everywhere so that they don't need to say anything anymore. Meaning, the missionaries, Paul and his companions, they don't have to do missions in those places. Why? Because their faith, this visible community, this visible faith has sounded forth, Paul writes. It's a very intentional word. That word sounded forth, it's not used anywhere, anywhere else in the Bible. You can find it in other Greek literature. It kind of means like this. It's used to describe the sound that comes when there's claps of thunder, kind of resounding. Or in another place, the crashing of ocean waves, constantly making this crashing sound. It's also described, uh, used to describe an unstoppable rumor or the sound of loud, repeating trumpets. And that's what Paul's writing. And one scholar writes this, what has rung out from Thessalonica is a report, a report about what the Lord has done in and among them, a word that spread like wildfire from place to place. Thessalonica was a very strategic location in the Mediterranean. It was located on what was called the Via Ignatia, and it was a very influential city, the capital of Macedonia, in fact. And it impacted the whole entire region of Macedonia. It had sea access to the north, the south, and the east. I mean, we're located on Route 476. <laughs> we have access to the north, we have access to the south, and Route 30, we have access to the West, Blue Route, right? It's not too surprising that when we started our church, committed to the vision of multiplying small 
groups of believers in these areas. And when we first went to our first location, God said, no, I want a better one, a place like Thessalonica that has access. God is guiding our church. Did you hear about what's going on at Renewal Mainline? It's not, they have great preaching and teaching there. It's not that. Or their praise music is so good. It's not that. Or they have such great programs and their children ministries director is so great. It's not that, but it's, and I heard so-and-so going through a hard time. And there are a couple of families who really reached out to them. I heard that some of the brothers there are meeting every week and they're praying. I heard there was a newcomer and immediately they got plugged in. That's the kind of sounding out that Paul's rejoicing over. And I pray that for our church. The final result is that there becomes life in the church. If you look at verse 9, Going to verse 10, Paul says that this gospel came in full conviction. Yes, it saved you. It gave you life. And it saves you by turning you away from idols to serve the living, true God as you wait for his son from heaven. We don't have much time to dive into this, but the way that idolatry works is that whatever you worship, you become to be like them. You become what you worship. The Bible shows that when you worship idols that cannot hear, you start to become deaf to the things of God. When you worship idols that cannot see, you start to become blind to the spiritual things in your life and the ones around you. And when you worship idols that don't have life, you yourself start to become numb to the things of God and of life. And you can have Many successes in this world, financially, in your jobs, in your family. But no matter what that brings, if you're not serving and having life that only God can bring, you will be dead and you will be numb like the idols. But Paul says, God, he loves you too much. Not only did he turn you from idols, but he turned you so that you can worship now the living and true God. So that no matter what kind of successes you have, the thing that matters is if you're truly serving the living and true God. And how does that happen? How do we live? How do we serve God? In the visible faith that takes place in small groups of people in our church. One author writes, our greatest fear as individuals and as a church should not be a failure, but a succeeding, things at, uh, succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. God, in his grace, loves us too much so that we can start now living for the true and living God. And you know what that starts to look like? We start to execute. We start to live out our faith, and we start to live out our vision. We start to multiply. We start to share our faith. People are attracted to what's going on at our church. Our vision is to bring the gospel to the people around us and to the other parts of this world. And whenever we hear that, to share the gospel, to live out the, the great commission and to evangelize, you know, there's a burden that we have because we know how hard it is, right? Individually going out into our workplaces and into our neighborhoods, sharing the gospel. I think it's because a lot of the times we think that this gospel 
the way that we share is kind of this kind of individualistic approach. You know, Jesus says, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And when we hear that, we have this image of us just going out to the lake with our one fishing rod, just getting one fish at a time. But in Jesus' day, when he said fishers of men, he was talking to not just one disciple. And the way that they fished wasn't with just one fishing rod. Now, perhaps this helps. In Polynesia, in the Samoan Islands, there's a place called Fagasa, a village. And the way that they fish is that groups of people, they would gather together, and they would line up very tightly, shoulder to shoulder, as the waves, they carried in fish at certain times of the day. And what they would do is they would make a human net by carrying these palm branches in their hands, and they would take one step closer to the shore as the fish are gathered. And by the time they got to the shore, all the other people had to do was just walk along the shore and just pick up bundles and bundles of fish. And fishing was like that. I think one of the encouraging things that we can take away is that as we live out our mission and our vision, we don't have to do it by ourselves. We do have brothers and sisters who will suffer with us, who will not simply sit there comfortably, but we can stand shoulder to shoulder, taking steps forward, And what's the result? We see fish. We see people seeing who truly God is. And we can rejoice over that. Let's pray. As we wrap up our time, perhaps I can invite you just to pray to God for yourselves. And perhaps you can ask this question. Have I received this gospel? in full power and in conviction through the Holy Spirit. And if you can say yes to that, perhaps you can ask the next necessary question. Has that gospel resulted in me becoming like Jesus, not only individually, but with others in this church? Let's pray that we will not have a truncated gospel, but a gospel that is full. Let's pray.